Um, <laughs> that's true. Like last time I was, I don't know if you were here last week, but it was a low, it was a troubling situation. All right. Um, all right. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good um, to see you again today as we um, keep moving through this summer. And this Sunday, what we're doing is we're continuing in our series called Stories We Tell. And I actually want to start um, this week not with a recap of the whole series. That's my usual move. Um, a couple of you, or at least one of you, was once my student. Um, and, and she may remember that uh, as a teacher, like the first half of every class was just recapping. It was a safety mechanism for me. You don't have to do a lot of new content if you're just reviewing for like 40 minutes. <laughs> but then they remembered that 40 minutes. Um, anyways, instead of starting with a recap, I'm going to start with a question. The question is... Have you ever been an outsider in a new place? Have you ever been an outsider in a new place? Which I suppose is really just a way of asking, have you ever moved before, right? And then worry about what it would take or how long it would take for your new location to feel like a new home. I have. Um, as most of you know, I'm not from Maryland. Um, I grew up in South Carolina. But something that I don't bring up um, nearly as often is that I'm not actually from South Carolina either. Um, I was born in Florida. In fact, that's my family's real home. My dad is from Pensacola. And my grandparents uh, lived in Lakeland for a long, long time. And my little group, my little family, meaning my mom and my dad and my brother and me, we moved uh, to South Carolina on our own, away from everybody else, when I was four. And one of the things that I still remember about that move, which was a long time ago, um, is how hard it was for my parents to ever feel like they really belonged. The thing about small towns, and that's what we did, we moved into the small rural town in South Carolina. The thing about small towns is that everybody is friendly and everybody knows everybody, but they're friendly in a different way for people, to people who aren't from there, right? There's two kinds of friendly. There's you're from here friendly, and then there's like we're being polite friendly. And my family was the recipient of being polite friendly. Um, and so my parents were outsiders there, and I grew up an outsider too, although I started when I was four, so I don't really have a memory. Ooh, this feels like I should remind, remember to say this to my therapist later. I don't have a memory of ever <laughs> feeling like I'm an insider. Ooh, guys. That was a tough one. All right. Um, anyways, I... I I grew up not quite knowing what was off um, about me or about my family. I didn't talk right, one of my teachers told me, I remember in school. Um, and I didn't really understand the food or the farms or the football for a long time. And I lived in South Carolina for 24 years, but I was always a transplant there. And if you were to ask my mom, who has now lived in the same house since 1986, she would say that she still doesn't feel like she's fully accepted. She has the accent that everybody else has. She goes to the same church at the end of the street that she's been going to for almost 40 years, but she believes that folks still treat her differently. And I don't know if the moves in your life have made you feel the same way or not, but if they have, I do think I know where this feeling comes from, and it comes from this. This feeling is what happens when you don't share a story with people, when you're not grounded in the same way that the people all around you are grounded, when you haven't buried people in a place or given birth to people in a place. 
And until you do, you feel the weight of those missing story pages, like all the time. And I bring this up because if there's one idea that runs through the stories that we've retold in this series so far, it is that God is telling a story in the world that he wants us to connect to. We saw this in the ways that the Israelites of the exile found themselves in their memories of the Exodus. We saw this in God's refusal to be bound to a specific people or bound to a specific place in the story of the Tower of Babel. And we saw it last week in the story of Jacob's reunification with his brother Esau. But the thing is, all of these are moments where God is the one reaching out to include people in the story. And today's question is, what happens when we're the ones reaching out? When we're trying to grab a hold of the story? Um, this week's particular tale, right, is about a woman named Rahab. And her story appears in chapters 2 and then in chapter 6 of the book of Joshua. She's not in 3, 4, 5. So if you're reading through, I mean, read it, but you can, you're not a finder in those chapters. And to set the stage for this, Joshua is the leader who replaces Moses when the wandering Hebrew people who have escaped from uh, Egypt finally cross over the Jordan River into the Promised Land after that flight, after that exodus. And in this story, the people are terrified of this new land that God has led them to. And they have these serious doubts about their ability to take possession of it. So they've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. God's promised them this place. And then they're there, and they're not sure that God was serious. And so there's this prolonged period in the book of Joshua when the, the Hebrew people are camped kind of at the periphery of the promised land. And they keep sending these spies in to kind of scout out the cities and the villages there to see how fearsome the people who live there are. And even though their first few expeditions into this territory are successful, they know that the first real test of this conquest of Canaan is going to be this city at the north end of the Dead Sea called Jericho. And God has led them there, led them to the doorsteps of Jericho. But once again, they're finding themselves filled with doubts about whether they can do this thing. And so once again, they decide to send spies, this time into the city to figure out what's going on. And they choose these two men. And this is, I'm just going to warn you, this is one of those moments that if you are familiar with the story as a kid, there's a very obvious thing that you chose not to see. Okay? And so I'm just going to let you see it as adults here. And, and you draw your own conclusions. So what happens is the Bible says they send these two men in, and then in the very next verse it says they went in and entered the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and spent the night there. Okay, I didn't see that as a kid. I think I see it now, what happened. And so these spies go in to the, the house of the prostitute Rahab, and then it says the king of Jericho was told... And then the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab to, quote, bring out the men who have come to you, who entered into your house, for they have come to search out the whole land. So the gig is up. But the woman took the two men and hid them. And then she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. And when it was time to close the gate at dark, the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you can overtake them. She had, however, brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax there. So, who is Rahab? Well, she is a native Canaanite living in the city of Jericho, and she is also a prostitute. And what is her role in the story? 
Well, she shelters these two spies, right, who frankly don't seem to be doing much spying um, in the city. <laughs> but why? I mean, really, there's not, it's just, ver- read it yourself. It's just, send the spies, they go in. I don't, there's no other thing. In my mind as a kid, there's this whole narrative about how, like, they're hiding from, like, the guards, and then they're, like, they just duck into the nearest building. It's like, ah! But that's not what we read. Anyway, so here's where the story goes. Before the spies went to sleep, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that dread of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt in fear before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites whom you utterly destroyed. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no courage left in any of us because of you. The Lord your God is indeed God in heaven, above and on earth below. Now then, since I have dealt kindly with you, swear to me by the Lord that you in turn will deal kindly with my family. Give me a sign of good faith that you will spare my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours. So Rahab is this character who shows tremendous boldness in this passage, right? And she does a few things that are worth digging into. The first is this. She reveals that she already knows Israel's story. And this is fascinating. And it's actually something that for me is one of the most critical and reassuring parts of the Exodus narrative. Because the Hebrew people have spent 40 years, right, wandering around in the desert after they left Egypt. And the reason that they were given by God for that 40 years of wandering is that it was a punishment because they committed the sin of idolatry when Moses went up on Mount Sinai. It's a golden calf thing. You might remember that. The consequence of that idolatry is 40 years of wandering so that a whole generation, everybody that actually left Egypt will die. And the only people that get to go to the promised land are their kids. But look what has happened during that time of punishment, right? That punishment has given time for their story to move ahead of them into Canaan, to the place where they're going. And that means that the people of Canaan have gotten this warning about who is coming their way. And we know that because Rahab has heard of them. And not only has she heard of them, but she says everybody in Jericho is afraid of them. And so she knows Israel's story, And this leads her to do something that her neighbors haven't done. And that is that she recognizes Israel's God. She doesn't just hear the tale of fearsome people crossing the desert conquering. She hears the story of their God. Now, as we talked about, Rahab is a Canaanite, which means that she lives in a society with its own religious structures. But as we talked about before in the Tower of Babel story, those structures, right, those deities that they worship are local to one place. That's the whole idea is that you build the ziggurat, remember, and then God comes down and he blesses you because he's there with you now. But what she has heard through the grapevine about the, the future Israelites is that their God doesn't work like that, that he doesn't live in one place, that instead what he does is he lives among one people. Right? And this means that wherever those roaming people go, the God that they worship goes with them. And so now that two of these people are in her house with her, 
right? She has to contend with their God, not just with them. And so what does she choose to do when she realizes that like, the God of the Israelites is like in her house? Well, first she shelters the spies, right? That matters. And this likely speaks at first um, to the ways that she already values hospitality in her culture. It could speak to their role as customers, I'm not sure. But what we know is that still, once the king of Jericho comes looking for them, right, then she has to make this very specific choice. And the choice is, who am I more afraid of, right? The king of Jericho or the god of these two men who are in my home? And so she sides with the two men. She's heard the story. She recognized their god. She sheltered them, and she sides with these two men. Now, at this point, Rahab might know Israel's story, recognize Israel's god, and kind of sense the way that the wind is blowing, right? But that doesn't necessarily explain why her story is important. I think her story is important because of what she does here at the end, right? Which is she seizes her moment. She takes her chance. She makes a deal with these spies, right? Their lives for her family's lives, and it works. And this is bold, and it's also an enormous choice. It's going to link us back to where we came from like 10 minutes ago, right? Because what Rahab is doing is she's choosing to move. She's choosing to leave a community where she belongs and take her chances in a new community where she's an outsider. Now, before we get on to this next part, I want to pause so you can kind of go back to your own memories about being an outsider if you've ever experienced that before. We need to think about the choices or the circumstances which led you to that feeling. I want you to think about how long it took for you to really belong in the place that you went to or if you've ever belonged in that place. Hopefully with those thoughts and memories, you know, back in front of you, let's look at what happens to Rahab. So here's what the story says. It says, she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the outer side of the city wall, and she resided within the wall itself. And she said to them, go toward the hill country so that the pursuers may not come upon you. Hide yourselves there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. And the men said to her, We will be released from this oath that you have made us swear to you if we invade the land and you do not tie this crimson cord in the window through which you let us down and you do not gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your family. If any of you go out of the doors of your house into the street, they shall be responsible for their own death and we shall be innocent But if a hand is laid upon any who are with you in the house, we shall bear the responsibility of their death. So she helps the spies escape. And then they give her a condition for this deal, right? And what is that condition? Well, she has to tie this red cord on her window. Now, the spies who are... I imagine totally just making this deal up on the spot, right? This has all the earmarks of like just rambling, um, which you should know about. I'm doing it now. But those spies who are making this deal, they don't know what's coming, right? But you, you might. You might know what's coming. You might have known the minute I said the word Jericho, right? What's going to happen is that the Israelites are going to circle Jericho for six days and blow trumpets at it. And then on the seventh day, God is going to knock the walls of the city down. 
with the exception, of course, of the one wall, right, where Rahab and her family are living. And that red cord that these spies have her tie out the window, it does not seem to serve any practical purpose in what is ultimately going to happen with God and the walls falling down. It's not like that cord magically holds her wall up or anything like that. It's not like that cord is necessary because the army is like invading and killing everybody and they're like, no, don't kill the people in the red cord house, right? It has no practical purpose in what happens. It has this entirely symbolic function in the story. But what is it symbolic of, right? Well, now that's something that the Israelites would know because it's an echo of the Passover. Way back in Egypt, the last plague that God brought upon the Pharaoh was the death of every firstborn son. And the way the Hebrew sons were protected was by keeping them in houses whose door frames had been painted with the blood of a spotless lamb, blood being red. And that red blood ends up being the thing that separates the people of God from the people of Egypt. And it becomes the marker that those people are other, right? But it is also the marker that binds them together as a people who are protected. 3,000 years later, to this day, right, Passover is still the central ritual of Jewish faith. And I think what happens, right, is that Rahab has celebrated a kind of Passover. She's participated in this ritual of Israel, and she has been marked as one of them, which means that now she belongs. And so at the end of chapter 6, when we come back to Rahab's story, we find this. But Rahab the prostitute, with her family and all who belonged to her, were spared. Her family has lived in Israel ever since. For she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Lovely, right? But the question isn't, can she live with Israel? The question is, is she ever going to be an insider there? Is she ever going to belong? In this series, we've said that our goal with each story is to see what it tells us about who God is. So we can ask real quickly, who is God in this story? Well, God is the one who honors this promise, first of all, the promise that these spies seem to be making on their own, but God honors their promise. And then he is also the one, by honoring that promise, who weaves Rahab into this bigger story of Israel. Rahab, oh, I'm sorry. So that's what we learn about God. He honors the promise, and he also weaves her into the story. What can we learn about ourselves? Well, first, I think we can learn from Rahab's example that it's worth knowing the story, right? The first step of her inclusion in the community is that she knows the story of God. And then Rahab does this, and then because she knows it, right, she's moved to act. And then that, I think, oh, man, I, I ran off my notes here for a second, and it's just off the rails. God does uh, God weaves her into the story. What Rahab does is she knows the story, and then she's bold in the way she asks to be a part of it. And I think the other thing we can learn, right, is to delight in the inclusion of Rahab in the story, right? Because this whole narrative's getting passed down through the people of Israel. It'd be easy to write her out, but they don't. Instead, they keep this woman and her story in their story. And I think that tells us something about our attitude towards outsiders and our calling right to welcome people not just into the periphery but all the way into the community to delight in that kind of welcome so those are kind of like the the superficial 
level one things that we learned this week. Who God is, how we can respond, how we can learn from Rahab's story. But I asked you at the beginning to think about your own story because what I want here at the end is for us to experience both perspectives. Like we can be happy that Rahab knows God's story, that she gets to become part of what, is, what God is doing. But I think we have the opportunity to wonder what is she feeling? Is she still that outsider looking to become an insider? Which makes me wonder, is God's kingdom really all that different from our own small towns or communities where we'll let people in, but we still kind of expect them to earn their keep, right? To earn a real sense of belonging. So what happens to Rahab? That becomes the question. Well, to answer that, we need to skip way, way, way ahead in our Bibles to the first chapter of Matthew. If we do, here's what we find. Abraham was the father of Isaac. We know them. We've talked about them. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Aram. And Aram, the father of Amminadab. And Amminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. It's the first inclusion of the mother in that whole genealogy, right? And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of King David. All that to say, Rahab doesn't turn out to be a character at the periphery of Israel's story at all. She turns out to be at the very center of it. Now, the timelines here are tricky. Some of you, like the biblical scholars in the room, may be realizing, like, those timelines don't seem to line up. This is a Matthew issue, right? Matthew plays tricks with the timelines. But the suggestion that Matthew is insisting on is that Rahab is at least the ancestor of a man named Boaz, who we read about in a different book of the Bible, in the lovely little book of Ruth. And in that book, we find Boaz, an Israelite, doing his own unusual thing. He marries a Moabite wid widow, Ruth, whose husband has died. And this matters in the book of Ruth because marriage with Moabites is a thing that is strictly and specifically and explicitly forbidden by Jewish law. But what happens in that story is that the Bible says that Boaz's act of compassion towards Ruth and his inclusion of Ruth in the community is a thing that God honors and treats as a reflection of his own desire to weave people from outside inside. Boaz does a thing that is like the things God does. And even though it is against the law, God honors it. Now, I think in this context, we look at Boaz's life in the context of Rahab and of this story in Joshua, it's hard not to wonder about Boaz's motivations, right? If he is thinking of his own ancestor, possibly his own mother of Rahab, when he sees in Ruth another outsider, a person who is longing to be a part of God's people. When he sees Ruth's earnestness and his faith, is he thinking of Rahab? And then where does this lineage thing go, right? Well, Boaz turns out to be the father of Obed, the grandfather of Jesse, and the great-grandfather of King David, the most revered figure in all of the Israelite monarchy. And so what's amazing to me about all of this is that God's story doesn't hide 
these characters whose backgrounds might seem questionable, right? Like a Canaanite prostitute or a Moabite widow. It centers these stories in its most proud moments. And it takes a few dozen generations from here, right? But we can also remember who else is descended from David, descended from Ruth, descended from Rahab, right? It's a carpenter from Bethlehem named Joseph, the husband of Mary and the earthly father of Jesus. So here's what we see. Rahab is not an ancestral Hebrew. Rahab is not a descendant of Abraham. In fact, she is of a people with whom intermarriage is expressly forbidden, the enemies of Israel. But her awareness of the big story God is telling, her grace towards people seeking shelter, and her boldness in playing the part that is given to her are all things that are of God nonetheless. And so she is connected to the big story by her faith. She does belong. I don't know about you, but I find tremendous hope in all of this. It makes me wonder about my own faith, right? Like no matter my history, no matter my past, do I see in God and in Jesus an example of who and what I want to be in the world? Can I sense these things that are of God and then open myself up to the doing of them? Do I really want that? Do I want to live a life that is an echo of the kind of example God has set for me? And if I do, if I make that choice to try and live that kind of God life, do I realize that connection to God's story, not just around the edges of that story, but maybe in the very center of that story, is an actual possibility for me? And if I do realize that, if you do realize that, then shouldn't we jump at the opportunity to be not just on the edges, not just on the periphery of God's story, but in the middle of God's story? We can do that. Who we have been doesn't need to be a barrier to that. The path to inclusion that the Bible charts for us isn't a long path or an arduous path. It's not one that's guarded by people who expect us to earn our stripes before we get to be fully accepted, right? God's kingdom is not a small town. The path is impossibly short. And all it takes to start down that path is recognizing who God is and saying that we want to be with him. It's a door that is wide open to the very center of the story. I grew up belonging but not belonging. I'll talk to my therapist about the degree of that later. (laughs) And maybe you have experienced that feeling too. But Rahab's story, I think, shows us that deep participation and inclusion in God's story isn't something that's just possible one day. It's something that's possible now. And what it takes is real faith that following the ways of God, those ways that I can sense deep down within myself are good, will be met, right, with this opportunity for a real and a living relationship with him, which means that I can choose Passover, I can choose the blood on the door frame or the cord on my window or ultimately the sacrifice of Jesus. And when I take shelter behind that, God chooses to come and dwell with me there. It's who he is. It's the kind of God he is. Which means that I don't have to go searching for him. I just have to let him in. And I can belong. And we can all belong.